We are up to chapter 10 in the book of Judges, and we've got a pretty sizable block of material to cover tonight. Uh, chapters 10, 11, and we'll venture over into chapter 12 as well. Tonight we're talking about the subject matter, the good, the bad, the ugly. <laughs> so let's get started reading. We'll go ahead and read, beginning in verse 1. It says, After Abimelech there arose to save Israel, Tola, the son of Hua, son of Dodo, a man of Issachar. And he lived in Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years, then he died and was buried at Shamir. After him arose Jair, the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities called Havoth Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Kaman. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites, and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have not Yet you have forsaken me and have served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you've chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. <coughs> So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead. And the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. They said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader, that we might fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you're in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, This is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. 
So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me that you have come to me to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now therefore restore it peaceably. Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites, but when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land, but the king of Edom would not listen. And they sent also to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Israel then sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon, and Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land to our country. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people together and encamped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. And they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to the Jordan. So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. And are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? And all that the Lord our God has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Now, are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel, or did he ever go to war with them? While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages, and in Aror and its villages, and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years, why did you not deliver them within that time? I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah to Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's. And I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aurora to the neighborhood of Manith, 20 cities as far as abel Kerimim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. 
So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months, then I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, Go. Then he sent her for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. Gary Phillips is a pastor from Tennessee, and he tells a pretty funny story from the earlier days of boxing. He says, L.M. Boyd writes about a boxer from the 1930s named C.D. Big Boy Blaylock. He was boxing for LSU against an opponent from Mississippi State. In the second round, the six-foot, six-inch giant threw a sweeping roundhouse punch at the same time that the boxer from Mississippi State had unexpectedly taken a step inward. The man's head caught Blaylock's arm at the elbow, acted like a lever, and Big Boy's arm whipped around in almost full circle, connecting with his own chin. <laughs> he staggered around the ring, grabbed the ropes, and finally fell flat on the mat. He was out cold. He's perhaps the only prize fighter in history who has ever knocked himself out. <laughs> That seems to be how Israel was at this point in her history as we look at the nation in the book of Judges. We see that there's no king in the land and the last verse in the book says what? Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. We see that nobody was living by the word of God. They were not looking to the Word of God to be their anchor in life or their compass, giving them direction. What were they doing? They were simply doing whatever felt good at the moment to them. Dangerous way to live. And so they had spun out of control in sin, and then God would bring judgment on them in the form of foreign oppressors. They would suffer oppression for a period of time then they would call out to God God would send them a deliverer who would deliver them of course they would be fine for a few years and then they would get comfortable and complacent again and the pattern would repeat as I've been saying over and over and over again we see that cycle in the book of Judges it seems like they were repeatedly giving themselves knockout punches <coughs> They were their own worst enemy. You recognize how people are at times? You ever been your own worst enemy? Well, as we move into chapter 10 tonight, we see that once again, this same cycle is repeating itself. This time, however, God sails them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, and verse 8 says that they crushed Israel and that Israel was severely distressed. Very vivid language there. They crushed Israel. But before we get into more of that, I want you to notice how the chapter opens. Right away, we're introduced to two minor judges. Who are they? Tola. Who else? Jair. Jair, we're told, had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. And so he is presented here as being a man of means. Donkeys were sort of the choice ride back then. No offense to BMW today, but donkeys were the ultimate driving machine. <laughs> Both Jair and Tola 
must have been very faithful men because for 45 years, apparently the land had peace and rest. Now folks, I want to give you some principles tonight that have to do with serving. And we'll see that you don't have to be big in the eyes of the world, nor perfect in the eyes of God, but what you need to be is available. You need to be available. And God can use you if you're not a member of who's who. God can use you. First thing I want you to see tonight, you don't have to have a lot said about you in the world to be big with God. Write down chapter 10, the first five verses. Now, folks, let's admit it. A lot of times in our Bibles, we concentrate on the big names, don't we? Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, King David, Jeremiah, Saul, Daniel, Simon Peter, the Apostle Paul, James and John, the sons of thunder. Those big names in the Bible stand out to us. But have you ever stopped to consider as you read through your Bible in the various narratives that make up the storyline of redemption, there's a whole lot more names that you probably don't know by heart. And yet they were faithful. I mean, just think about Jesus' 12 disciples, for instance. Can you name them? Who, who do we readily name? Peter, James, John. You probably think of Thomas, Doubting Thomas, Judas Iscariot, the traitor. Matthew, Andrew, Philip, Thaddeus, Simon, Cyrene, Bartholomew, Alphaeus. Could, could you have listed all of those names? Probably not, right? But you could the big names, right? Peter, James and John. Matthew. If you were to turn sometime and read the last chapter of the book of Romans, Paul talks in the last chapter of Romans, Romans 16, he lists there some 32 names of people who have been pivotal in the work of the kingdom of God. Pivotal folks. And yet I guarantee you, if I tested you tonight, we took out a sheet of paper and I said, list 10 of those 32 names. We couldn't do it. Again, we just don't think of a lot of those names. It's a testimony to us that the Bible storyline is not simply made up of the Moses or David type figures. We look at Christian history today and Christian history today isn't made up of just a a long list of Billy Grahams, right? There's, there's lots of unknown servants. And that ought to be a testimony to us, right? God's looking for faithfulness. First, First Corinthians 15, 58 says that we are to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That's what God is after, faithfulness. Paul says to the Corinthians, here's what God's looking for in a steward, faithfulness, that we be found faithful. So again, you don't have to have a big name. You don't have to be known by everybody to be used of God. Just be faithful. <laughs> be faithful with what God's given you to do, right? Take, for example, the testimony in 1994 of missionary Doug Nichols. He talks about his mission with Operation Mobilization in India in 1967. He, he writes that during that time, he spent several months in a TB sanatorium. He, he had TB himself. And after being admitted to the sanatorium, 
He tried to give out Bibles and other Christian literature and witnessing tracts and all of that. And the patients, the nurses, the doctors, the administrators there wanted nothing to do with this literature. He said you could tell they were unhappy with him, viewing him as just another, probably just another rich American who's trying to tell us how to live. Well, he writes that during the first few nights, he'd wake up around 2 o'clock in the morning coughing. One morning while he was going through this coughing spell, he noticed a much older, sicker patient, an aged, frail man. And this man was desperately trying to get out of bed. And finally he gave up and just collapsed back into his bed. The next morning, Doug said he realized what had happened. The man was trying to get up to go to the bathroom. Because of his extreme illness and weakness, he couldn't. He just fell back into the bed. And he just went right there. Sold the sheets. And Doug said the stench was horrendous that next morning. The other patients were yelling at him and cursing him. The workers were doing the same. One nurse came over changing his clothes and his bed sheets and cleaning them up and she just hauled off and knocked the daylights out of him. And the little man just crawled up in a ball crying. Well, same scene played out the next night. He was trying to get up. Doug went over there and lifted him up. He said this fellow at first was surprised because the room was so dark and all of a sudden here's somebody else right in your space. And, but then the man realized what he was trying to do and he wrapped his arm around his neck and Doug carried him to the bathroom. When he brought him back to bed and laid him down, the man said, thank you. Well, he didn't think much of it. But the next morning, another patient woke Doug up with a nice hot cup of Indian tea. And the patient said, can I have some of that literature you were trying to pass out? And he said, one after another, patients and even nurses and doctors kept saying, we'd like your literature now. Can we have it? And he said, one right after another, he led them to faith in Christ. Now, you've not read anything about Doug Nelson. Right? I've not either until now. But he was faithful. Small names, small roles to play, yet they were faithful. Many names like that in the Bible. And God's work grew and increased. So don't despise fault, small things. Just simply be faithful. Like Tola and Jair apparently were. Now the second thing I want you to see tonight, bad choices often lead to misery. Verses 6 to 16 in chapter 10. In verse 1 of, of, uh, of actually the next chapter even, chapter 11, we're introduced to Jephthah. He becomes the next judge. And what's the context? The people are in misery again. That same cycle. They're in a pit. They're miserable because of their sin. This time they cry out to God. What's God say to them? Yeah, I'm not going to deliver you this time. I've had enough of it this time. I'm not going to deliver you. Call on those gods you've been trusting in. See if, see if they're able to help you. I'm not going to save you anymore. <coughs> Their repentance has only been superficial, right? They're, they're kind of like the prisoner that somebody visited in prison and he, they asked him if he was sorry for his crimes. He said, absolutely. They said, well, what are you going to do about it? He said, next time, before I pull a job, I'm going to put on gloves. <laughs> so, they, nah, so I won't leave my fingerprints. <laughs> well, Israel's like that. They're sorry, but they're not really sorry. It's a sorrow not leading to repentance. And so God finally says, no more. Again, call on your 
God you've been calling on. Well, what kind of reaction does that do with them? Scares them to death, apparently. Uh-oh. We're in trouble now, for real. God's not going to help us this time. So they finally get down to business with God and they put away all their foreign idols. And once they do this, God looks on them with compassion. Listen, don't ever buy into the lie that people want to bring up today that the God of the Old Testament is mean. God is very patient with his people. As 2 Peter 3, 9 says, God's not slack concerning this promise, but is long-suffering. Over and over and over again in the book of Judges, we see the mercy and the kindness and the grace of God. But let's, let's see another lesson here, though, right? For some people... They don't ever sense God working in their lives. They cry out to God and nothing really changes. They want to blame God. You know what might be wrong? They might have a sorrow, but it's not a godly sorrow. A lot of people like that today. Sorry for their sin. Sorry they got caught. Sorry for this or that. But it's not a sorrow that leads to repentance. And so they don't sense God working in their lives. Well, once God begins to deal with Israel again, at the end of chapter 10, they start looking for somebody who can help them. And we learn about Jephthah, and we're told that he was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Now, folks, here again, as we've been looking at, here's another place in the Bible. You see how God used very imperfect people, right? I mean, who do we meet in the book of Joshua? Rahab. Imperfect people. You read through the Bible and boy, you notice there's, there's some families that are really messed up that God ends up using because they, they turn to Him in true repentance and faith and they serve Him and God uses them regardless of their background. Kind of gives everybody hope, doesn't it? Well, Jephthah's dad is married, but he fathers a son by a prostitute. wonder how his wife felt about that. But evidently, he took the boy into his home. He raised him, and he had other sons by his wife. So the day comes when his brothers get together, and what do they make? want to make sure Jephthah doesn't get? That he doesn't get any of dad's inheritance. So they drive him away. So Jephthah, we would assume, leads a very lonely life. He's driven away. Isolation from his family. Well, third, I want you to see, God uses the circumstances of our lives as training ground. Look at the first three verses of chapter 11. And what you see there, again, Jephthah's been driven away from family and friends. But while in another land, God teaches him, teaches him some very valuable lessons. God teaches him warfare, not only warfare, but leadership. <laughs> These worthless fellas gather around him, and, and they've gone to battle with him. I guess if you can lead worthless fellas, you can, you can lead anybody, right? So there's some things he's learned about leadership. Listen, folks. Your life, even your life before you were redeemed, is not a wasted period of time. You can probably look back in your life now and see how even that period of your life before you were a Christian, God might have been putting you into situations, teaching you things, training you, getting you ready for when you were going to be a Christian one day and God was going to call you to do something. I think of Dr. Lewis Johnson. He was a professor of Greek at Dallas Theological Seminary. Now, as a university student, he loved golf. He was on the golf team. In order to be on the golf team, he wanted an elective that he didn't think would matter. So he took Greek. I don't know why in the world you would choose Greek. 
It's not called baby Greek for no reason. When you start taking Greek in seminary, they call it baby Greek because you have to stay up with it all night. <laughs> it's a difficult language. He didn't like it, but he loved golf. Well, the next year, he simply came, he, he, he came to the point that he loved Greek. He took all the Greek he could take. He graduated, went into business, was absolutely miserable in business. He finally realized God was calling him into the ministry. He went into the ministry as a Christian professor at a seminary teaching Greek at Dallas Theological Seminary. See, don't, don't look at things in your life and see them as wasted. God was at work in Lewis Johnson's life when he didn't even realize what God was up to. I guarantee you, you look back on your life and probably find some circumstances like that too. Well, I bring that up because I think that describes Jephthah after his brothers drive him away. There's some valuable lessons he learns during that period in his life. Lessons that when God raises him up to be a judge, those lessons are, are going to be very useful. Well, fourth thing I want you to see, God's surprising servant. And you write down verses 4 through 40 of chapter 11. Once again, remember, Jephthah was an outcast. He was rejected by his brothers. Why? Because he didn't have the best pedigree. I like the way one writer outlines Jephthah's life. He breaks this whole section down saying, we have Jephthah, the disowned, Jephthah, the desperado, Jephthah, the diplomat, Jephthah, the defender, and Jephthah, the daddy. In verse 4, we see that the Ammonites are making war with Israel. Verse 12, Jephthah becomes a diplomat. He's the only judge that we read about in the book who first tries the route of diplomacy. He sent messengers to the Ammonite king to ask him why they've been oppressing Israel for 18 years. In verse 13, we see the answer of the Ammonite king. Jephthah responds by challenging him to check his history, check his theology, and check his chronology. In verses 15 to 22, he points out that Israel did not take the land of Moab, or the land of the Ammonites. The Ammonites are trying to revise history here. Some things never change, do they? Look, look at what all is going on today in our, in our own country. We have people trying to revise history. Well, that's, that's what the Ammonite king is trying to do. Jephthah points out that Israel had avoided violating the territorial rights of Edom, Moab, and Ammon. But Israel was given no such prohibition, he points out, against the Amorites when they requested safe passage through the Amorite lands and were themselves attacked with, with provocation by Sihon, king of the Amorites, they defended themselves, and the result was that the Lord gave Israel the victory. And so Jephthah's point is, it never was your land to begin with. The land that you now question was land taken as part of the spoils of war against the Amorites. Israel took no land of the Ammonites. Next, he invited the king to check his theology in verses 23 to 25. The victory against the Amorites came about only because the Lord had given them the victory. And so Jephthah asked, if you and your people think you deserve what your God gives to you, then why should Israel not have what her God gives to her? He says, even Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, did not attack Israel over land disputes. 
And then in verse 26, he says, check your chronology. Israel had possessed this land for 300 years. So why are you suddenly coming against us now? Well, surprisingly, or not surprisingly, I should say, I guess, the king of the Ammonites didn't listen. So, so we see Jephthah, the defender. We're told that the Spirit of God comes upon him, and what's he do? Defeats the Ammonites. The text makes clear the Lord delivered the Ammonites into Israel's hand. Now what's the tragedy in this text? The tragedy is Jephthah the dead. He has a daughter, his only child, obviously loves her very much. She loves her daddy very much. What's he do? He makes a foolish vow. He didn't need to make this vow, folks. God had already promised him the victory. So the veil wasn't even needed. You know what I would suggest? I would suggest that Jephthah, while having some good qualities, obviously wasn't a man of the word because God's word in the book of Deuteronomy said, don't make vows like this. And in Ecclesiastes, God's word says, if you make a vow, you better carry through on what you promise. Well, even though Jephthah predates Ecclesiastes, he still nonetheless had Deuteronomy at his disposal. Had he lived by the book of Deuteronomy, he wouldn't even been making a vow like this to begin with. He makes this vow, ends up being greeted by his daughter, keeps his vow, takes her life. Now, without a doubt, this is one of the most questioned narratives you'll read about in the Old Testament, certainly in the book of Judges. <coughs> but I want to tell you there's two ways of looking at it. In, in the Hebrew, and the Hebrew text lends itself, it's not as clear, it lends itself to either interpretation. Some say Jephthah made a dead sacrifice of his daughter. Some say he made a living sacrifice of his, of his daughter. Until the Middle Ages, just about all early commentators viewed it that Jephthah killed his daughter, and so he offered a dead sacrifice. Now, if that's the right interpretation, which it might be, what's it show? It shows the canonization of God's people. God's people, when they went into Canaan, they weren't supposed to be like the Canaanites. They were supposed to be different. What the Canaanites do? They offered their children as sacrifices to their false gods. If that's, if that's what Jephthah did, it shows how much like Canaan in their thinking that even a judge in Israel has become. What a sad commentary they've become like the world. But more recent commentators argue persuasively, we're not talking about human sacrifice here. We're talking about living sacrifice. They argue that what happened here is like what Hannah did with Samuel in 1 Samuel 1. When she dedicated Samuel to the Lord. And Samuel was raised in the temple. They argue that what happens with Jephthah's daughter is that she becomes a temple virgin. A group of ladies that served at the temple, never married, gave their lives 100% to the Lord. The reason she grieved so much and Jephthah grieved so much is that it was the fervent desire of every Hebrew girl to grow up and be a mom. And if Jephthah is going to have any grandkids, she's his only child. She's his only hope for grandkids. And so his family line's going to be cut off. And these modern commentators point to Hebrews 11 that Jephthah shows up in the roll call of faith, a good example in Hebrews 11. And, and they question if he would have really showed up in that roll call of faith had he killed his daughter like the Canaanites offered their children. 
Well, you can argue it either way, okay? I'm just saying. Probably the most natural reading of the text, he killed his daughter. And it shows how much like the Canaanites they had become. But I'm at least hoping the other interpretation is the right one. <clears throat> that she became a temple virgin serving the Lord the rest of her life and never married. That'd be my hope. But again, I just tell you, it, the Hebrew reading can, you can make good arguments for either case. But folks, Jephthah's ignorance is even more profound. I mentioned Deuteronomy a while ago. If he would have known the book of Deuteronomy, he would have known not to make vows like this. But had he also known the book of Leviticus? What's Leviticus tell us in the case of a vow like this? You can offer certain gifts, certain sacrifices... And get out of a vow like this. So, had he known Leviticus, he would have known Leviticus, the word of God, would have given him a way to offer something else to the Lord instead of his daughter. My point again is, by not knowing the word of God, he didn't even know, you know, Deuteronomy and Leviticus... He got himself in a pretty bad predicament, right? But folks, let's think about Christians today. Let's bring it home to us today, not just Jephthah back then. What about today? You reckon Christians get themselves in some messes today because they don't know the Bible? And even if they know the Bible, they, don't, they choose to ignore application of what it says do. Don't we do the same thing? Have you ever looked back in your life and thought after you've done something, made a mess out of something, you, you sit down and think, had I just done what God's Word says in Ephesians or Romans or whatever book, had I just done what God's Word tells me to do, I wouldn't have even gotten myself in this situation. <clears throat> so let's just be honest. We do some of the same type of stuff today, don't we? Well, lastly, I want you to see tonight, sideline critics need to get in the battle. And I'm just going to mention chapter 12 here. After my initial reading tonight, I'm not going back and read all these verses, and I'm going to let you read chapter 12. We don't have time to go through this in detail, but I want, I want you to understand what's going on in chapter 12. Apparently, Ephraim, one of the major tribes was always ready to show up late. Remember they pulled this with Gideon. Gideon appeased them. Now they try it with Jephthah. It didn't go so well for them with Jephthah. They show up and complain after the battle is fought that Jephthah didn't include them. They threaten him and they say, we're going to burn your house down with you in it. Well, in, in verses 2 and 3, Jephthah makes the point that he did call for them. They simply didn't show up. When he needed them and called for them to serve, they weren't there. Now they want to show up after the battle that has been fought and they want to start criticizing. They ignored their responsibilities. They let their brothers do the work and then they criticize them after the fact. Does that sound like a lot of Christians today? They're not going to sing in the choir, teach Sunday school, won't work with the youth or children. They'll wait till the service is over and then they'll criticize everybody who's serving. <laughs> right? Most churches today have some Ephraimites on the loose. <laughs> Lots of Ephraimites on the loose. Makes me think of D.L. Moody. I've mentioned him recently, the Billy Graham of his day. 
He was approached by a man who said, Mr. Moody, I don't like the way you preach. Mr. Moody said, I'm open to learning. Tell me how you preach. The man said, oh, I, I don't preach. And, and Moody responded by saying, well, I prefer the way I preach then to the way that you don't. <laughs> so Jephthah doesn't put up with their complaining. He goes to battle against them and kills them. Now, he takes it perhaps too far rather than just defeating them. He even sets up a guard at the crossing of the Jordan. And because of linguistic differences in the land, they can't say shibboleth. They pronounce the word sibboleth. So whenever an Ephraimite is trying to get back home after the war, cross the Jordan, they give themselves away by the way they say the word. By the way, I don't know if you realize this or not, Hitler did the same with Russian Jews after World War II. They pronounced their word for corn differently, and that's how he identified Russian Jews. So when the Ephraimites can't say it, say it right, Jephthah and his men know they're Ephraimites, and so they kill them. Jephthah wipes out just about the whole tribe of Ephraim. So again, goes a bit overboard, doesn't he? Well, but nonetheless, God used him as a judge in the land. Rough around the edges, didn't have a good family background, imperfect, but look how God used him. When we look at these chapters, we see sort of the the good, the bad, and the ugly of serving, right? Again, Tola and Jair, small names. You don't read about them elsewhere in the Bible, but they must have been faithful. 45 years the Lamb had peace on her. Jephthah comes along, pretty rough fellow, bad background. Doesn't always do things quite right. God uses him nonetheless. And then you have these sideline critics. A lot of them get killed off. Where do you fit in today? Are you suffering from insignificant syndrome? Woe is me, who am I? I'm nobody. Who's my family? What can I do? I don't have the education. I don't have the experience. I'm not as talented as Miss So-and-so or Mr. So-and-so. What can I do? What's the lesson? Be faithful. You're a steward. If you're a Christian, you got at least one spiritual gift. At least one. Be faithful. Faithfully use it. That's what God's looking for. Even if your name never gets up in lights or in print. Be faithful. Maybe you don't see yourself having the right background or pedigree to be called upon to do very much. Well, if you'll look at what God's been doing all through your life, you might be surprised how God's been preparing you to serve it. Again, I guarantee you, every one of us in here, there's some things in your background that even before you were saved, you look back on them now as a Christian, you see how, how God was using even that to get you ready for some kind of service He was going to call you to. Just don't be somebody who sits on the sidelines, watches everybody else serve, you don't get in the arena, so to speak. But when it's all said and done, 
You just complain about how they how they did it. Oh, if I'd been doing it, I'd 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 done that sermon, that lesson, that song. I'd I'd done that different. Okay, do it different. Get in there and do it different. Right. Don't let opportunities pass. Well, we're just making our way right through the book of Judges, right? Anything stand out to you tonight? Like say, in the interest of time, I didn't go back and read the verses as we were covering the points. So I hope I didn't lose you tonight by not doing that. But go back and read Ch tonight, maybe before bed, read chapters 10, 11, and 12 more carefully. And if you took down these notes with these verses, kind of, kind of study over it a little more. Jim? Scott, I was just wondering, back in chapter 11 and so forth, I was looking at D.A. Carson's notes on, mm -hmm. on the chapter 11, verse 24, and, and proceeding down there and everything. Right. He seems to be really hot on Jephthah. <laughs> I mean, starting out, he says, uh, Chemosh, the national god of the Moabites, Jephthah, uh -huh. is in error. The god of the Ammonites was Milcom or Molech. Mm. And I do remember that, you know. Right. So I don't know if he's just in error or he's revising history or what he's trying to do there. But all I see is one, one verse after another. Jephthah is in error. Jephthah is in error, you know. Mm -hmm. Right on down through verses 25, 26, 28. And, uh, and then as far as referencing the Ammonite defeat, Joseph's vow, Jephthah's vow. Mm -hmm. The centerpiece of this story is Jephthah's vow. The outcome of the battle with Ammon is almost a side story. Yeah, the, his vow is what, as I mentioned going through it, what gets the attention that people remember about Jephthah today. Mm -hmm. But he's quoting chapter and verse all through all these verse references sure. here. Wrong, wrong, wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought it was interesting sure. to see that on there like that. Some of those Canaanite gods, they, you know, they served... Baal and Ashtaroth, Baal's female counterpart, Molech, Chemosh, kind of. Like today, there may be a people today characteristically are known to be of this type of faith or something, but even within that grouping of people, there's differences. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That, I just couldn't get over that. I sure. just thought I said, man, he's just going right on down here. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. This yep. dude up here, he's trying to change it there. So. Yes. He was a very imperfect character himself. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, he knew a little bit about the Bible. Right. He gave the history. Just didn't know the biggest parts that he, he needed to know. Right. I can understand why he didn't know Leviticus. <laughs> I mean, who does? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what your homework's going to be now. Oh, Kathy's going to tell us all about Leviticus. Oh, yeah. <laughs> i got to learn to spell it first. 